What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we are going to talk about whether it's effective to tie CEO's compensation to company goals like diversity and workplace safety. And then we discuss how immigrants in the U.S. make a large majority of our innovative technology and how that can change because of COVID-19 and restrictive immigration policies. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. How do you incentivize a large, complex, multifaceted company to do something? How do you get it to lower its emissions or put in better safety procedures into place in its factories around the world or create a more inclusive and diverse workforce? Things that are objectively good for the company and its stakeholders. Many believe that a company can be directed to achieve these goals by tying their leadership's compensation to these goals. And most large public companies already have a form of this in place. When you look at their proxy statements, for example, you can see that often a high percentage of the company's executive team's multi-million dollar compensation is tied to some sort of performance metric as a way for the boards and the stakeholders to try to incentivize behavior. For example, if you look at Microsoft, you see that half of CEOs, Satya Nadella's 10 milli, in U.S. dollars that he was compensated with in 2019 were tied to three equally weighted metrics. How Microsoft products did, of course, how Nadella directed the company's interactions with customers and community stakeholders, kind of like how he dealt with just the customers that he has to work with, and how Nadella fostered an inclusive community at Microsoft, including his efforts on promoting diversity. And I think it's important for me to note that diversity one, that last one, it was found using surveys if he actually did it well. So what Microsoft did is they asked their employees if they understood how to leverage these this new core priority for inclusion to contribute towards building a more diverse and inclusive workplace. And if they were creating a situation where employees could actually do that. And the reason I want to give you that detail is because that last one, the diversity one, tying CEOs pay to diversity and inclusion is starting to get much more traction today during this upheaval that we're having around the world with about racial inclusion and systemic racism and everything under that umbrella. So today I wanted to discuss CEO incentivization, how it's implemented its benefits and shortcomings, all that, because I think it's important to put this all into context at the moment. And specifically, we're going to talk about two incentive metrics that have been built into the compensation structures for companies' executives. One that has worked really well, and one that has not worked so well so far. So first, let's talk about the one that's worked well, tying health and safety metrics to CEO compensation. And to do that, I have with me Samuel Block, who covers our heavy metals and mining industry, which can be very dangerous for employees and for workers. So, Sam, I think it'd be good if you kind of gave us some context as to how CEOs were getting their compensation based on health and safety metrics. The most the most common ESG metric that is tied to executive compensation is health and safety. Um, and in many cases where, you know, companies face multiple ESG risks, uh, the most common is still um, just going to be on safety. And um, usually that is tied to a company achieving some sort of um, target on, on one or two metrics 
that measures safety. So for instance, total um, injury rate or maybe uh, preventing fatalities or keeping a fatality rate below a certain uh, number. And sometimes those metrics that, that are, you know, the targets that the company set are uh, targeting an improvement. And sometimes it's just targeting to maintain a certain standard of, of, of performance. And so have you found that when these um, policies are tied in with CEO compensation, that it's actually useful in reducing overall rates of injury, safety issues, things like that? So what we found is um, the companies that have executive compensation linked to health and safety performance um, don't always have the best performance overall. But we have found in, in general, it does mean that those are the companies that have the best improvement over time. What we found is uh, go, goes in the opposite direction, though, is actually is when uh, companies tie uh, regular rank and file employees, their compensation to health and safety metrics, because that can lead to underreporting. Um, so we, we have seen companies that have, you know, uh, very low injury rates, but then the high fatality rates. And it just it shows that um, they're fundamentally underreporting um, a lot of the smaller incidents that can help management actually better understand what are the what is the safety uh, performance at a company? Yeah, I think it just goes to show that if you are going to use income incentives to ensure systematic changes, it might need to be at the executive level. And to kind of sum what you were saying there, so so health and safety is a pervasive risk across all companies, and there are easily identifiable health and safety policies that can, if this is the way you want to go as a board, as a shareholder, as a stakeholder, be useful to tie CEO compensation back to. But now I kind of want to go to what happens when there aren't policies that we know work really well to tap down a problem at a company. What if you want to lower your carbon emissions or what if you want to foster a more diverse workplace? And if it's hard to tell whether a policy is actually working, then you have a situation where you could be paying your CEO a lot of money but not getting much back in either return or benefits to the company or what have you. And I'm not just worrying about this overpaying over nothing. There's a huge problem in the pay for performance or CEO compensation for, quote, good stuff market. We wrote a paper in 2017 that said the system may be fundamentally broken. So to help me sort this all out, I have with me Christina Milhoman, who researches corporate governance for us. And Christina, I think I want to start with climate change first, and we can we can end the episode talking about diversity, pay before, for performance metrics and CEOs. Can you tell me how climate incentives are being used in the marketplace and how they're being structured into CEO pay? So... Climate uh, metrics are quite new, so you're not alone when you say that you, you actually don't know them. And they they can vary a lot, right? So there is no one um, template that can, can that companies can simply incorporate. So what we've seen so far is that most of these climate metrics are limited to emissions intensity reduction. And as you know, uh, these not necessarily will lead to absolute emissions reduction. Right, because you can have intensity, just for everyone listening, is the ton of CO2 emitted per sales dollar. And you can just increase your sales and keep your CO2 level flat, and that will decrease the emissions intensity of your company. And I know a lot of CEOs' pay has yet to really be tied to climate objectives, but 
for the ones that you've seen, could you kind of give me the lay of the land currently? Could you give me the environment, pun intended? Well, um, we don't have enough data to test these climate metrics quite yet. So what we can do is actually look at their structure, right? So for most of the companies that we've seen so far, these climate metrics are actually tied only to the CEO short-term variable pay. And that means the annual bonus. Instead of being uh, tied to both the short-term and the long-term incentives. And another very important point is that most of the times, these climate metrics, the weight they assigned to these metrics is quite minimum. So if you combine the fact that it's only tied to the short-term performance variable and that the weight is quite limited, then you may end up with a climate metric that is not that impactful. So just to give a little bit of context, uh, we have seen and we, I have come across uh, climate metrics where the amounting that the, the, the total impact is less than 1% of the CEO's total target pay. And that, that is despite the fact that climate change is a hot topic. Wow, really? 1%? I mean, that makes it seem like they are really caring, even though it, it's, it's a huge risk. I mean, it's, it's such a key business risk that you would need more to be tied to that than just 1% of compensation, which, you know, for a multi-million dollar uh, pay package is, is a lot, but it's not as much as you would need for that sort of uh, massive problem that's going to affect so many different businesses in so many different ways. It kind of reminds me of when I was looking at the proxy statements of companies that have put in place um, pay incentives to go with workplace diversity. I'll go back to Microsoft um, because they lay it out really well in their proxy statement. And they say that their diversity metrics for their CEO are based on survey responses. They say nearly 80% of their employees and managers surveyed indicate that they understand how to leverage a new core priority for inclusion to contribute towards building a more diverse and inclusive workplace. And that 90% of those employees think that they are going toward that. So it seems more like these general statements rather than hard quantitative facts of how they're going to create a more inclusive workplace, what policies they're going to be put into place. Uh, so I was wondering if you could kind of touch on that as well, since I know you've done a lot of research for us on the gender diversity of boards. Well, surveys are definitely the first step, right? So surveys are a way for companies to inform themselves where they are in the, in the, in the spectrum in terms of diversity and, and what they can do to, to promote uh, more diversity and, and, and to fill some of the gaps. But if they want to create a, a pay uh, performance metric out of it, there'll be more work to do. What would that look like? What would a pay performance metric that's useful look like? So companies have to ask themselves what they're trying to accomplish and how they expect to accomplish those goals, right? And this will be the frame that will help them decide what they have to put in the key metric. So it really varies from company to company and it depends on the context of the company. And it has to be, or ideally it should be in line with the company strategy, right? Because that makes the key metric more powerful. Does it make it easier in your opinion for the CEOs to have their pay tied to something like diversity because it's a universally necessary situation. There's a lot of studies 
that show companies do better when they have a more diverse workforce, uh, let alone for the societal requirements of it. But does that make that materiality factor that it's so widespread, industries can work together, there can be industry norms established much easier than for like carbon or climate metrics. Does that make this an easier process to implement? You have a point that diversity is relevant to any company, right? But you have to consider the context. These policies or metrics where it's like one size fit all kind of metric won't be as effective to all companies, right? So when I say that the metrics have to be in line with the strategy of the companies, that they have to be well-designed, right? They have to be mindful. So you name it, like there are so many metrics that are linked to, to, the, to the CEO pay. So just adding one more without actually fully considering how does that work in, com- in, in combination with the other metrics and if there is any conflict and thinking about the weighting and so on and so forth, it's essential to create more meaningful policies. Um, if you think about it, thinking about how Thinking about what is the uh, the ultimate goal and then how you want to get there is really important because it could be that you are investing in in bringing new people to to the company to fill some of the diversity gaps, but it could be that you actually have a very strong pipeline of candidates, and then for you, the important part is actually to invest on those candidates to make sure that they have opportunities, that there is no glass ceiling, that they are treated fairly. So. The type of policies that have to be implemented for these two different companies will vary, right? And the metric should be aligned with the type of policy that is linked to the goal that you want to achieve. In the end of the day, both companies are trying to, to improve their diversity ratios, but how to get there is different, right? So this might be something that companies could consider when thinking about setting up this kind of key metrics. Semiconductors are used in every sector because every sector now relies on digitalization. Everyone that is lucky enough to be working at the moment basically now relies on digitalization. And semiconductors get fabricated in Southeast Asia. But semiconductors get innovated in the U.S. And according to research completed by my guest and colleague, Siping Guo, a large majority of skilled semiconductor developers in the U.S. recruit international students not domestic students. And now, both because of restrictive immigration policies in the U.S. and the pandemic, more and more people are either being deported or just staying away. So, Saping, I was wondering if you could kind of give us an overview of the long-term viability of the semiconductor industry and innovation in the industry in general during these very difficult times for immigrants. So, if we look at the the, the numbers of students um, in majored in science, um, uh, engineering, mathemat- method- mathematics, and technology. And we, we have seen that in 2015, for example, there, there are 80% of the, the science um, uh, graduates are actually international students. And from what I understand, in the 90s, there was a much closer parity and nationality of STEM graduates. So, But what happened now in the industry with immigration being restricted and people just being nervous to come back to the U.S. What what's kind of going on? Yeah, I, I mean, we have already seen the um, the impacts. It's not like just post COVID nineteen or only in this year. We have already seen it in uh, since two thousand eighteen. 
So at that time, we have seen that uh, for um, H H-1B visa, which is very important for uh, foreign students to um, stay in the U.S. and work for U.S. companies, and the denial rate for the visa actually uh, grow from like 10, around 10% to 30% just in, in, um, in just one, one or two years. Not only that, in the long term, visas have been harder throughout the Trump presidency for people to obtain. And if, if, you, if someone wants to work on classified technology, it's even harder for students and scientists to get visas. And as you noted in your paper, this is the industry most affected by restrictive immigration policy and one of the most important industries for the progression of our technology. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Sam and Christina and Saping for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps. I always like to see what's on your mind. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stay strong for whatever you're fighting for out there, and I'll talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.